I'm Lily Knapp with Blue Ridge Public Radio. I sat down with North Carolina's poet laureate Jackie Shelton Green to talk about how she views her work as part of Southern literature, why poetry is important, and where real change happens. Here's our extended interview. So you go around the state and meet with different people. What do you hope to talk about when you meet with any group, no matter if they're college students or um, prisoners? As I'm journeying around the state of North Carolina, I am very excited about the possibilities that happen in conversation about the power of language, the power of our stories, how our stories um, collide, unite, intersect with each other across, you know, all of the boundaries of class, race, age, sexual preference, uh, geography, religion. I know that the power of story is like medicine. So what I have witnessed and experienced is people really really wanting to lean into these conversations and really wanting someone to facilitate processes where they can tell their stories. I'm often working with people who don't feel like their stories are worthy for public consumption. They think, why would anyone want to hear my story? And I have to remind them that it's, it's their story and they should own it and preserve it and conserve it but more importantly, they should tell it. Because I think it's in the telling where we get to see ourselves over and over again in other people's stories. Um, and that's, that's been magical, whether it's been with elders at rest homes or nursing homes or teenagers or junior colleges, you know, community colleges or major universities. Um, and I've even been outside of the United States in my post as the Poet Laureate. For me, it's such a blessed privilege and a true gift to be able to, to be given this platform to help people raise their voices. How do you help people come out of their shell and, and share the words that they, they have in their story with you? Today I didn't do an exercise that I typically do, but I did it yesterday. I believe in the philosophy of what we keep keeps us. And I ask people to introduce themselves by way of an object or a memory or a place or something special that they keep. And as we go around the room sharing that, people start to hear their own stories inside of the things that other people are keeping that are dear to them. Uh, many of us keep things that belong to grandmothers or grandfathers or, you know, a young man was wearing a locket yesterday with words on it that um, was given to him by his father. So I use that necklace as a motif to talk about documentary poetry, that that necklace itself was a primary document and that he could use the language on the necklace inside of his poem, which he did. And the poem was introducing himself. So I try to just show up in my own humanity and be respective of other people's humanity. And I, I live in a world of questions. I like to ask questions to germinate conversation. 
Part of your work as a poet is also hosting events like your sister writes trips. When many people think of a poet, they think of hermit-like or insular people. How do you balance outward events with your inner writing? Yeah, I can be both. You know, I mean, not only am I the poet laureate, but I teach at Duke University. And then I have this business called Sister Write, which uh, I facilitate writing retreats for women uh, who don't necessarily have to be writers, but women who are looking for their creative narratives inside of an art form. I've had textile artists, quilters, welders, women who work with fire and sculptures, sculptors, come to perfume makers, come to the retreats because they're looking for the language and the narrative, the stitches, how those stitches are really words. So Martha's Vineyard, Asbury Park, New Jersey, um, we've gone to the Ann Spencer House Museum in Lynchburg, Virginia. Ann Spencer was a Harlem Renaissance poet. We've written in all of these fabulous places that matter. Last summer, 16 women joined me in Morocco. Eight women came for two weeks. We did a lot of writing. We did a lot of traveling, experiencing Morocco. And then two weeks later, a second group came after they returned. This year I'm doing, I actually have a retreat to Morocco in June, late June. We have a writing retreat in Tullamore, Ireland uh, in May for 10 days. And Ocracoke, North Carolina at the Outer Banks is our hub in North Carolina. So I am, I can be very insular. When I'm writing, when I'm being the poet, I am alone, and I am totally immersed in my writing. When I am not being the poet, I am being the community builder, because I really do believe that if we're paying attention, if our hearts are open, if our eyes are open, if we're listening, we will find the tribe that supports our work. So there are many tribes, and a lot of those are women, that I play with uh, in a community setting. We do a lot of, Sister Wright provides a lot of Saturday all-day pop-up writing retreats where we just come together for one day and write all day and eat good food and share and critique each other's work. So those are the possibilities that I stand for in terms of how we build community through the arts and especially through poetry. Can you tell me a story about a time that you were inspired by someone that you met at one of your events? It's funny you ask. So I had a very interesting uh, scenario, very interesting experience that happened to me in Greensboro, North Carolina. So here's the backstory. Biscuitville, and I don't know if you have Biscuitvilles up here, but Biscuitville, you know, makes biscuits. They have stores in Virginia and North Carolina. They wrote to me and asked me, uh, could they put my image and a little bio on a bookmark? Apparently, historically, they have been doing this every year for Black History Month. So they actually put my picture and a blurb, and on the back of the bookmark is Nina Simone, a picture of her and a blurb, and it's a, it's a sausage biscuit coupon, 
it's a bookmark, but it's a, really a coupon. So I was like, sure. Um, and they, they give it out during Black History Month. Then they call me and said, Ms. Shelton Green, would you consider reading poetry at Biscuitville? And I thought, Biscuitville? I'm thinking, Biscuitville? Okay. Monday morning, 8 o'clock in the morning. I drive up into the parking lot. We cannot find a parking space. It's like cars are just everywhere. And people are circling the parking lot. There are four camera crews from TV stations in the lot. And I'm thinking, surely they're not here for me. I go in. The place is full. Do the portrait reading. It's a great day. People were just wonderful and receptive. Then they call me again. That went really well. Can we do this next Monday? Same time, same place. This time we'd like to invite the Poet Laureate of North Carolina A&T State University to come read with you. It's like, that would be fine. We go back. There are more people than the first Monday. After the reading, I'm standing by the door saying goodbye to people. But before that, I've seen these four men come in, and they're wearing the red Make America Great Again caps. And they get their food, they sit down. I'm kind of watching them out of the corner of my eye. And they, one of the guys like looks at the bookmark, and he looks at me, he looks back at the bookmark, then he looks at me again, then he says something to his friends, then they all look at me, they're looking at their bookmarks, they're looking at me. They finish their food, I'm by the door, they walk up to me, and the first guy says, hi. I went, hello. He said, is this you? I said, yep. He's like, wow, that is so cool. And I was like, yeah, that is cool, isn't it? The second guy says, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm just a little old country girl. And the third guy says, oh, like us. And I said, yeah, like us. The other guy says, I love it when good things happen to ordinary people like us. And I said, me too. The other guy pulls out a stack of the bookmarks from his black back pocket. And he says, I'm taking these to my youngin' school for Black History Month. I was like, cool, thank you. So we're standing there, and the other guy says, you know, nobody's going to believe us that we met the poet laureate this morning. Uh, my wife is going to be so jealous that she wasn't here. So this guy says, well, they'll believe us if she'll take a selfie with us. So I thought about it. I said, okay. Almost in unison, the four men take off their caps. They put them on the bench behind them. They circle me. We hug, we take a selfie. As they're leaving, they give me hugs. And the first guy who spoke to me says, you keep making us proud. You keep doing the stuff you're doing. You make us proud. And I said, I'll keep doing that for us. So I tell the story because the black students that were there from A&T State University were kind of unsettled didn't understand. They were questioning why I would have a conversation with these men. And I had to remind them that I am the Poet Laureate of North Carolina. I am everybody's Poet Laureate. I am indeed 
the guys who wear the red hats, poet laureates, whether they like it or not, I am also their poet laureate. But the fact that these four men stepped outside of their hats, and it was a moment of just just five human beings having a pleasant exchange. So what I said to the students is, this is what walking your talk looks like. If you believe in the power of story and the power of the arts, standing for the possibility of, of change and making the world a better world and having conversations would not, that would not normally happen outside of the construct of a moment of poetry or dance or music, that this is what just happened. This is me walking my talk. It's not just about hashtags. We can't keep writing hashtags. Don't build the wall, tear down walls, solidarity, unity. If we are not willing to stand up inside of the language of those hashtags, they're not just hashtags. So if you don't understand what it means to be a peacemaker, to be a unity builder, to be a community builder, then you shouldn't dare use those hashtags. Because language is powerful, and that story that I tell, for me, embodies the power of what this work can be as the Poet Laureate, as an ambassador of literary arts, traveling across North Carolina, meeting people where they are, you know, not being judgmental, uh, being open to all the possibilities of, of how we start to reframe our humanity. So you feel like it's your job as a poet laureate not to have that political conversation with them, but to instead have a, you know, a conversation about the arts and the importance of poetry. Well, the thing is, you know, we didn't really, they prompted the conversation. The conversation was, wow, so you, you grew up in the country like us? You're just an ordinary, I'm like, yeah, I'm just an ordinary person who became the poet laureate. These things happen to ordinary people when we do our work and we stand for the possibility of doing good work. So that was not a political moment. You know, I don't stand in those spaces, you know what I mean? Even though I talk about how we use poetry, um, especially documentary poetry, to address social concerns, to address uh, all of the issues that we all should be human activists for, you know, be it to save our earth, to be good humanitarians, you know, for our ecosystem, but also for our human ecosystem, to be the powers that be. Um, the change is going to happen in communities. All of the changes that happen at the national level and policy making, it does happen. But the real change and the real conversation is the conversation we have across driveways, talking to our neighbors who look different from us, talking to a complete stranger in the library, meeting someone in a grocery store line, or, or in a bookstore holding a book, and a total stranger says, oh, I've read that book. So these are the possibilities that can happen when we remember to stand up in our humanness, and to be vulnerable. Because I think that we're in a time when we're afraid to be vulnerable, all of us. We're protecting our vulnerabilities. 
What do you hope the students took away from today? I'm from Macon County, so often when famous people come to the mountains, everyone's just thrilled for a visit. It helps the students feel like someone from here could also be the poet laureate. Is that one of the things you hope they took away? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I did a residency at the elementary school that I attended. I was there for like a month with the first graders. And it was a it was truly a wonderful experience because I keep telling these young people you can be me. First of all, I never had a dream that I wanted to be the poet laureate. It's never been anything I've aspired to. I've aspired to doing my work as I see my work as a poet, as an artist, as a voice, helping to help other people excavate their voices that they've hidden, that they've buried, or sometimes their voices that maybe have been erased, um, disenfranchised, helping people to reclaim the power of their voices. So I tell everybody, you know, we all have a voice. I, I didn't grow up differently. I grew up in the rural South. Kids can relate to a lot of my stories growing up as a child of the rural South. And then I went away and what it, what it means to leave the comfort of, of your your rural community, small rural extended community, and land in New England or in places where you're suddenly thrust into a world of differences. And being able at a younger age, at a young age, to embrace and interface with people from all over the world really helped me create different lenses for how I started to perceive the world, how I could show up in the world. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that I'm modeling. It is my, it is my intention to model, um, and I don't want to use the word legacy, but model what it looks like to just do your work and to believe in your work, to not allow artificial and secondary critics to decide if your work is worthy. You first have to decide that you're going to be the critic of your work and not give up your power to people who, one, who don't understand your writing, who don't understand the social fabric of and the emotional, spiritual fabric of what influences and directs your writing, that person should not be reviewing your work. You know, if that person, I've, I've had too many critics and reviewers review my work, and what's missing is they don't have any, any frame of reference whatsoever, any frame of reference from whence they can enter onto the landscape of the work to have a conversation with it, to be in dialogue with it. So there's a lot of power in utterance. And I'm hoping that what I'm leaving is people to continue to tell themselves that they have stories, that as long as they're here, they should tell their stories. Because long after we drop the mic, leave the stage, our stories linger from generation to story generation. That's why we tell stories. You know, so what are we leaving as legacy in terms of a culture that will 
instruct what young people will write in the next generation. Often when we talk about Southern writers and Southern literature, people only expect them to write about the rural South. But your work explores your travels to Morocco and many other places. How do you balance those ideas and how do you explain your work to readers who have a specific idea of what Southern writing is? It's the connectedness of my humanity wherever I go. I remember many years ago, I asked one of my students, I said, where are you from? And he said, everywhere I've ever been. That line has struck me then. It was like, whoa, you're absolutely right. We carry our stories with us. We bring pieces of other cultures back with us. And they all get mixed up in the soup. And to me, that's the beauty of you can be of so many different places. You can bring back the flavor of a tagine and sit it right down next to the collard greens, next to the cornbread, and it works. So I, I think that, um, well, I know that one of the things that I try to impress when I'm working with young people is travel, is see the world, travel. I think if I had not left the rural self as a young person, I would have a very narrow, fixated uh, kind of <laughs> illustration of what the South looks like. You know, the South is not, we, we sometimes as Southerners get hung up on some of the Southern nostalgia. And then we all buy into sometimes um, Southern amnesia and the crisis in Southern memory that all of us collectively sometimes don't want to talk about a South that is not nostalgic. It's nostalgic for some people. Slavery was not nostalgic. Slavery didn't just happen to black people. Uh, slavery and racism is an American issue, an American concern. Now as we look at 400 years of people, of, of people being enslaved and coming to this country I think of the first enslaved woman who came to Virginia, who was enslaved in the Congo. Her name was, was Angela. It was her Angelize name. No one knows her real name. But what we know about her, and what, the only thing we need to know about her, is that she survived. She survived the Middle Passage. She survived being kidnapped from the cargo she was on by pirates who thought they were getting a, a booty of, of treasures of jewels, and they got people. And she landed in Virginia. She survived the famine that caused um, a lot of barbaric cannibalism because the settlers could not find food. She survived. So when I think about the legacy of the seeds that survive, someone survived, so I am sitting here talking to you. Some, some, somewhere in my genetic trail, some woman decided not to throw herself and a baby overboard, a slave ship. They continued. So when I think about that legacy and the legacy of all that they could not say, all that they could not utter, it is my time to speak for them. You know, 400 years to look back and look forward and think about 
What are, the, what are the stories, what are the histories that we need to rewrite, that we need to correct? And when I say correct, Americans have to embrace all of the bad and the ugly. It doesn't belong just to people who are oppressed. It belongs to all of us. It is our collective story. And I know the healing and the reconciliation that happens across these boundaries when people are intentional to step outside of our comfort zones and walk into that. So I've seen how my poetry sometimes sets up that landscape where different peoples in a room who don't look like each other, who don't sound like each other, are suddenly in conversation about the subject matter, the content of a poem that I've written where they can see themselves on either sides and where we meet in the middle. And that's what art does. It brings us to the middle. That was my conversation with Jackie Shelton Green, the Poet Laureate of North Carolina. This is Lily Knapp, BPR News.